Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest criminal case. On July 18, 1984, Denise Morel, a famous Quebec actress, was found raped and savagely murdered in the apartment she was to rent in downtown Montreal. To her family, friends, from the stage and her fans, the death of someone who everyone affectionately nicknamed Dame Plum caused terrible deep dismay. After all, who would want to hurt this unpretentious, respectful, friendly and generous woman who was loved by young and old alike? Who could have subjected her to such abuse and then kill her so barbarically? The investigation was eventually dropped due to the lack of evidence and remained unsolved for 23 years. Although the case faded from memory, a genuine breakthrough occurred in 2007, with a DNA sample collected years after the initial crime surfacing. This was perhaps the only chance to unmask Dane Plum's killer and put an end to the mystery. Today's episode will also focus on a similar case, that of actress Franz LaChapelle, whose murder occurred in 1980 in Quebec under similar circumstances. Now, let's take a closer look at these cases. Hello, 911. I'm calling to report the disappearance of my roommate, Denise Morel. Everyone is looking all over for her. You said you were her roommate? That's right. What's your name? Joycelyn Corset. When did you see her last? The day before yesterday. She was planning on visiting an apartment that she wanted to rent. In fact, it was the landlord who called me to tell me that she hadn't followed up on her request. Do you have the address of the apartment? Yes, just a minute. I think I have it here. Okay, it's 1689 Rue Sanguanet. We'll check it out. It was Wednesday around 4 p.m. in the afternoon of July 18, 1984, when the police visited the aforementioned address in the very seedy neighborhood. It was an infamous part of old Montreal, reminiscent of New York and its alleyways with the homeless huddled together and used syringes littering the ground. The two police officers reached and knocked on the door of the apartment on Rue Sanguet. There was no answer. A sign that read, apartment for rent, was posted on the window. The door was not locked, so they turned the handle and entered. It's the police. Is there anyone here? The apartment was deserted. The two officers started to search the place. They looked in every room. On the ground, they noticed that there were shards of broken glass and greasy paper stained with ketchup and mayonnaise. The place appeared to be untidy, as if the last tenants didn't even bother to clean up before they had moved out. The police continued their search. It's the police. Is anyone there? They repeated once more in unison. There was still no answer. 
Eventually, they concluded that they were not at the right location. The man who contacted them that morning must have been mistaken. Perhaps Mrs. Morell had never been here or maybe she had left well before they had arrived. However, just as they were about to abandon their search, one of them noticed a door, probably leading to the basement. Here, let's go take a look. The stairs creaked with every step as they made their way down to the basement. They tried the switch, but there was no light. They turned on their flashlights. In the darkness, they spotted an old washing machine and a dryer. In another corner of the room, there were several cartons containing various items, and then suddenly came up a body. The bloody body of a woman lying in a nook and hidden under a few sheets of newspaper. The police rushed to check the woman's pulse. She was dead. No, it's not possible. Call an ambulance. The news of Denise Morell's murder was broadcasted on television that very evening. It was an announcement that shook everyone, including those in the television and theater industry where she worked. Many could not believe that she was really dead. Not her, not Dame Plum, who had made so many people laugh during the 1970s. The autopsy revealed the relentlessness of the attack. She had been violently beaten, burned, raped, and then strangled. It was a pure carnage. At the Theatre St. Adele, where she had been performing over the last week, all performances of the current play were cancelled following the tragic news. Both backstage and in the dressing rooms, the director, producers, actors, sound technicians and makeup artists could not believe what they had just heard. No, it was not possible. It had to be a bad dream. Among those who grieved was the actor René Gagnon, who starred opposite Denise and who spent time with her at work. They even made the trip back to Montreal together every weekend. René Gagnon and the victim had seen each other less than two days ago. He recalled that Denise seemed to be happy and peaceful. She was looking for a new, bigger apartment so that she could leave the apartment she presently shared. Her mind was also focused on several upcoming projects, including filming a new television series on a super ecrant station, not to mention that she would be performing all summer at Theatre St. Adele. What then could be the explanation of this murder occurring at such a pivotal moment in her career? Did she run into an unsavory character, or was she just at the wrong place at the wrong time? Probably. The police started to gather witness statements. All of the victim's colleagues and friends unanimously agreed that Denise was a quiet, carefree woman who never indulged in excess. She was discreet and down-to-earth, certainly not the kind to get involved in casual affairs or to hang out with just anyone anywhere. In fact, she hardly dated at all, but when she did, she chose her suitors carefully. At the time of the tragic event, Denise was almost 60 years old. She had never been married nor have any children, yet she seemed to enjoy her single life. Moreover, she loved her freedom and her life as an artist too much to give it up for a traditional family life with restrictions. She always said as much to her friends whenever they teased her about her willingness to settle down one day. Her only family was her brothers and sisters, in particular her older sister, Pierrette Gauthier, with whom she was very close. Besides, the theater was her whole life and her colleagues were like a substitute family when she was touring. Her love life was a mystery. No one had ever seen her in the arms of anyone and she was a bit too shy to let herself be seen in public with a lover. René Gagnon, who usually spent the most time with her, was held for questioning a bit longer than the others. Denise grew up in a conservative Catholic environment. I think that influenced her personally a great deal recalled a young man to the police when they asked him about an alleged relationship with the deceased. 
We liked each other and respected each other, but only as friends and co-workers. There was never really anything else, he added, preferring not to mention their huge age difference. But before getting into the facts and continuing the investigation into the case, some background information might prove useful. Denise Morel was born on December 3, 1925, in Montreal, five years after her parents were married. She was a third of seven children, four boys and three girls. The Morel family was close-knit and artistic. Marie Huguier, their mother, played the piano every evening and her children loved to accompany her, almost like a little impromptu choir. Like all large Catholic families in Quebec, at the time, the children were exposed to religion early on and faithfully attended church with their parents and to communion. Little Denise found her calling at seven years old. She liked to dance, sing hymns, and imitate everyone around her. After high school, she enrolled at the conservatory to learn to play the cello and flute as well as to take class in elocution and theater. At 18, she continued her training at La Col des Compagnes de Saint Laurent, a college that trained most people who worked on the stage or on the small screen in Quebec. She had her first taste of theater in 1952 when she got a part in a play called Blood Wedding and then again four years later in a play called The Great Departure. It was then that she really started to become a known figure to the public. Her career on television only started in the late 1960s when she played the role Plume in the children's show Lover Bolding. It was a blessing. The program was the first to broadcast on Radio Canada on October 17, 1967 and was a big hit with young audiences. Denise Morel, then 42 years old, played the role of Zany and the colorful Dan Plume. Wearing a red wig and makeup like a moonstruck B.R.O., she perfectly portrayed the character straight from the Italian comedy, full of jokes and puns. It was clear that Denise was tailor-made for the role, as a short brunette with joyful, expressive eyes, a big nose, and a funny walk. She was like the female version of Charlie Chaplin and light years away from the beauty standards of the era that had highly valued tall, slender blondes. For producers, the actress was not someone who might be called a pretty woman, but that didn't prevent her from being versatile and multifaceted and making a name for herself in both drama and comedy. Furthermore, she was alternatively a meme, a dancer, singer, and an impressionist who was easily able to vocally imitate a little girl or the complete opposite of very old woman. Besides her countless qualities, more than compensated for her physical attributes that were not consistent with the beauty ideals sought by major productions. She was intelligent, lively, funny, and generous, but she was also modest and accessible. Fame never went to her head, even for a moment, with the success of La Rebolding. Denise was thrust into the spotlight. Offers from more serious productions began to pour in. For a short time, she traded in the colorful garb of Dame Plume for the more understanding role of a school teacher in the telefilm Federic. She even played the role of the mother of a peasant family in the series The Sons of Liberty. But theater always remained her first love and she always ended up returning to it. In fact, she quickly returned to the stage a year later. This time she was the star of the play Mrs. Robert Drinks a Little, where she played a penniless noblewoman who dreamt of becoming an actress predictably. The play was a great success across the whole country. In fact, Denise was a part of the touring company that played it in Vancouver, Ottawa, and Calgary. The tour ended on a high note at the Grand Theatre of Quebec at the Sherbrooke Cultural Centre. Her success continued following the year at the Rideau Vert Theatre, which is commonly known in Quebec as a summer theatre, which was often presented outdoors like puppet shows. She imbued her characters with a blend of authority and fragility, naivety, and complete abandonment. 
Yet, her co-workers and her audience found her very charming. Denise Morel remained a great mystery, a discreet woman who fiercely guarded her privacy. Although she was certainly exuberant, boisterous, mischievous, and provocative when she was on stage, in her everyday life, she was like described as being a very secretive and not very forthcoming about her love life. In fact, she had never given a single interview throughout her career, even though she was often asked. After the very successful tour of Mrs. Roberg Drinks a Little, Denise Morel moved to the Revere des Prairies area in 1982. It was a small residential neighborhood without pretension where she was able to go out by herself to do her shopping, usually on foot. Even without her colorful makeup, people had no trouble recognizing her. In fact, many people shouted when they saw her, Oh my God, isn't that damn bloom in the drink section? She was often asked by children or the parents to sign autographs, while others, upon seeing her, loaded with heavy shopping bags, offered to drop her in their car. That was because of another of the actress's trade. She didn't drive, she had no car, and never received her driver's license. In January 1984, Denise Morel, who was almost 60 years old, was cast in the role of the 50-something floozy in a brand new play. Despite the fact that she was beginning to develop arthritis, she accepted the producer's offer. The play was performed every day from Tuesday to Saturday at Theatre St. Adele in the Laurentians. That's where she met her co-star and the man who would become her close personal friend, the actor Renee Gagnon. At 35, tall, blonde, sensitive, considerate and affectionate, Renee Gagnon embodied the new generation of actors from Quebec theaters who dreamt of having a future in the movies. Denise often gave him advice. As a pioneer, she showed him all the tricks of the trade without ever abandoning her modesty or kindness. Renee greatly enjoyed her company, and they soon became inseparable on stage and in their everyday lives, like a couple who got along well without being lovers. Every evening after the performance, they met up to have dinner or for a drink. Sometimes they were joined by other members of the cast, and sometimes it was just the two of them. In St. Adele, the atmosphere was very relaxed and friendly, far from the stress and anonymity of the city. Denise liked it quite a bit. Every Sunday and Monday, on their days off, the two friends made a trip together to Montreal by car and shared the traveling expenses. Renee would drop Denise off at her house before going home. They agreed to do so until the end of the play's run, which was scheduled for late September, with the first performance supposed to take place in October. Denise Morel also had to think about an offer that she had just been offered. Two days earlier, a producer named Jean Daigle came to see her in her dressing room to ask her to work with him on a TV series, Les Chirouettes. She had to appear before a panel at the end of July for her initial screening tests. Denise didn't have a manager and she did everything by herself. She looked after the contracts, answered her own telephone calls, and accepted or declined offers while still trying to protect her privacy and not have it displayed in front of everyone. Jane Daigle reminded her that this role was perfect for her. But Denise had many other practical problems to take care of at the moment, and at the top of the list was the need to move. While it was great to be an actress, to go on tour, and meet movie producers, there was still the harsh reality of the day-to-day -day grind, which eventually caught up. The primary reason why she wanted to move out of her apartment in Riviera des Prairies was to be closer to downtown. The other was that the current home was no longer suitable because the rent was too high. While working at television usually paid very well, there were also lean periods that Denise had experienced more than once. To save some money, she decided to take in a roommate, the young Joycelyn Cossette. 
But living with someone, even a roommate, wasn't easy for a woman like her who, after years of living alone in an orderly life, had developed habits, quirks, a schedule, and a list of do's and don'ts. As for Joycelyn, she worked in a record store. He was from Montreal in his 30s, single, and he loved motorcycling. She had a house with Dame Plume was easy for him because she was hardly ever there. She was always caught up in the never-ending whirlwind of touring and rehearsing, which meant that he had the whole apartment to himself for five days out of seven, sometimes even longer when she was at the other end of the country. However, as soon as she returned on Sunday evening, she couldn't help but lecture him. Joycelyn, you forgot to take out the garbage. Joycelyn, you forgot to empty the dishwasher. Joycelyn, you left the damp clothes in the washing machine and now there is a terrible smell, and so on. The young man felt like he was living with his mother. Mrs. Morell, just leave it, I'll take care of it when I'm done. But he never did. He always found some excuse to hop on his motorcycle and join his friends at the pub. I feel like I'm living with a little kid. She confided to Rene Gagnon when they met on Tuesday morning to travel to St. Adele together. Get rid of him. What are you waiting for? And find another roommate. Me, for example. Oh, stop joking, Rene. Maybe it's me who's becoming too grumpy and controlling. At the end of the day, I'm the one who should leave and take a small apartment by myself downtown. Close to everything. Yeah, that's a good idea. Denise Morell spent the week scouring the classified in the papers in search of her elusive new home. To her dismay, she found that rents had doubled, if not tripled, compared to previous years. Clearly, living in Montreal meant having to be a millionaire. Except if someone wanted to find a two-bedroom apartment in a basement. Frustrated, she put the paper aside and prepared to go on stage. It was early July 1984, and the usual cold Quebec spring had given way to summer-like temperatures well above average. Denise Morel still hadn't managed to find a new apartment and continued to search the newspapers. Despite the tips she got from her friends, she preferred to take care of things on her own. The almost daily performances and the long car trips between the Laurentians and Montreal were also starting to tire her out. On the weekend of July 10, 1984, she let René Gagnon travel alone while she stayed in her dressing room in St. Adele to spend a couple of days resting. On Sunday, July 15, 1984, she returned to Montreal without her friend, whom she called to say that she had decided to leave earlier in order to look for an apartment. In fact, she had already packed up her things and advised Joycelyn Cossette to find himself a new roommate. While leaving through the classified ads, Denise Morel thought that she had finally found a rare gem. Apartment at Henry Julian. Three rooms, kitchen and bathroom, balcony, well ventilated. Rent negotiable. Please contact Mr. Antel for more information. Denise dialed a number. The friendly voice of a man answered her on the other end of the line. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. The apartment is no longer available. Someone else before you rented it. But maybe I have something else that might be of interest to you. Where is it? Rue Sanguinette. Why, it's in downtown? It's perfect. I just wanted to let you know that the door isn't locked. The former tenants left with the keys. As I'm sure you realize, the city has become a real jungle. In any case, you seem like someone of good faith, and so you can go and visit the place at your leisure, and we'll discuss it tomorrow, suggested the landlord, who apologized once again for not being available that day. On Tuesday, July 17, 1984, at around 10 a.m., Denise Morel went to the Laurentian Bank in St. Laurent. The weather promised to be pleasant. She was in good spirits, somewhat relieved at the thought of mooing soon. She couldn't wait to tell her friend, René Gagnon, the good news when she saw him that evening before leaving for St. Adele. 
while at the bank, Denise withdrew $200 and then walked to Ruth Sanguinet to visit the second apartment as agreed on the phone with the landlord. Ruth Sanguinet was small, narrow, and ran parallel to St. Dennis, which was known for being seedy and frequented night and day by the homeless. On the whole, it was not much to look at. Denise noticed that garbage cans were lying around and no one seemed very upset by it. The street she was walking on was littered with trash, so much for upkeep. Such a sight had never been seen before in her old neighborhood of Riviera des Prairies. Was she already beginning to regret her decision? Not for the moment in any case. She continued on her way until she reached the indicated address. She noted that, indeed, the door hadn't been locked. Very carefully, Denise gently opened the door, went inside. When she reached for the light switch, she was surprised to find that there was no power. Moreover, there was a strong smell throughout the apartment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was quite obvious that the previous tenants who left with the keys weren't very big on housekeeping. Right at the moment, Dame Plum was still unaware that a terrible danger was awaiting her, lurking in the shadows and watching her every move. It was 6.30. Leaning on the door of his car, René Gagnon waited for his friend to arrive. They had previously arranged to meet at their usual place near Montreal. That evening, they were to give another performance of their play. But why was Denise late today? René Gagnon was left dumbfounded. Soon, it was 6.45, 6.50, 7.10, 7.15, and she still hadn't arrived. The young man started to become quite impatient and a bit anxious as well. Knowing how punctual Denise was, he knew that she would never keep him waiting for more than half an hour without giving him an update. So then, what could have delayed her? Visiting her new apartment? That was supposed to have happened this morning. So what was going on then? Rene glanced at his watch one last time. It was 7.30. There was hardly enough time to get to the theater and get ready to go on stage. Oh well, too bad for Denise. Disappointed, he got back into his car and sped off. Let's hope she's already there. Upon arriving in St. Adele, Rene Gagnon was immediately stopped by the director. Denise isn't here? Of course not. Weren't you supposed to be traveling together? Everyone was dismayed. It was too late to find a replacement. Too late for them to rehearse the lines. The producer had no choice but to cancel that evening's performance. Dame Plume had the lead role and carried the whole play on her shoulders. So it would have been impossible to do otherwise. In the meantime, René Gagnon became increasingly worried and tried to reach Denise at her apartment. The phone rang, but no one answered. After the fourth attempt, someone finally picked up and the actor let out a sigh of relief. Yeah, 
Denise? No, this is Joycelyn. Who's calling? It's Renee Gagnon, her friend and colleague. Is Denise there? Mm, No, she was supposed to go see her new apartment this morning. Yes, yes, I know. Renee replied impatiently. Do you have any idea where she could be? Did she say anything to you before she left? Well, that my rental agreement will be cancelled and that... Okay, thanks. Renee Gagnon spent most of the evening calling people all over. He contacted the hospital in Montreal, gas stations, shelters and emergency services, but it seemed like Denise was nowhere to be found. A last resort, he dialed 911 to speak to the police. The next day, Joycelyn Corset himself was contacted by the landlord of the new apartment. He hadn't heard from Mrs. Morell since the night before and he was still waiting for her answer about her visit. That was when Joycelyn Corset wisely decided to get in touch with the police to give them the address of the apartment on Rue Sanguinette. At the theater, the tension was mounting. If Denise had decided to quit, she could have at least given notice. In the wake of her disappearance, a first-time actress, Louise Remy, was chosen to replace Denise for upcoming performances. At around 6 p.m., Rene Gagnon arrived at the management office, pale and in tears. Denise, Denise has been found dead. The body was found at around 4 p.m. in the basement by two police officers sent to the scene. Additional help arrived to assess the situation. Every room in the apartment was searched and all fingerprints were taken. Lieutenant Lorette Gavreau from the Quebec Provincial Police had arrived at the scene of the crime. He noticed that the body of Mrs. Morell displayed evidence of incredible violence. She had first been beaten, raped, and then burned. The murderer showed her no mercy. He struck her in the face and arms with a blunt object before strangling her with his bare hands using a cord found on the floor. For the moment, the motive of the crime remained largely unknown. The police could not understand the reason for such relentless brutality. In the meantime, the landlord, who was alerted by the police, also arrived on the premises to make the gruesome discovery. The police asked him a few usual questions before sending him to their headquarters for an in-depth interview. The investigators took care of removing all evidence, including a carton of matches that had been used to heat up the blunt object, a cord, a piece of iron, and a footprint stained with blood. They had also removed pubic hairs from the victim and trace of sperm. On the floor, the content of Denise Morel's purse was scattered all around. The murderer also had taken $200 that she had withdrawn from the bank a short time earlier. The medical examiner in charge of the autopsy of Denise Morel's corpse concluded that the initial blows were struck using fists. Then an object was used to inflict the injuries, something which was made white hot and applied to different parts of the deceased. Then the victim was initially manually strangled, followed by strangulation with the cord. Her genitals showed that she had been raped twice and her vagina appeared to have been burned with the same heated blunt object. The next day, all of Quebec learned the terrible news of Dame Plume's murder. The sordid details of her agony were related emotionlessly in every newspaper. It was a sad end for someone like her who all her life had taken care to keep her private life far from the spotlight. Throughout the investigation, three theories were considered. First was that this was a robbery that had gone wrong. According to the investigators, the thief probably followed Denise Morel immediately after she left the bank before quietly sneaking into the apartment in order to rob her, probably thinking that there was a huge sum of money in her purse. He probably panicked and tried to escape and things escalated. The contents of the bag found scattered on the ground with the $200 missing was proof that the aggressor's first thought was not to kill Denise Morel, but rather to rob her. 
this theory, although quite likely, was eventually quickly dismissed by the investigators. According to Lieutenant Gavro, an experienced thief would have not savagely murdered Mrs. Morell just to steal a mere $200. But during the course of the investigation, a second theory began to make headlines. In fact, a witness caught the attention of the police with an important testimony stating that on Tuesday, July 17, 1984, a delivery person from the rotisserie, Opelador, recalled that he had parked his minivan on Rue Sanguinet to make a delivery. When he returned, he noticed a strange individual exiting an alleyway on St. Dennis. He seemed haggard like he was in a drug-induced state. Furthermore, he was walking strangely, staggering and stumbling with every step. His hair was frizzied and burnt, and he was wearing white pants stained with blood. The delivery person added that he saw him somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30, which was consistent with the time that the victim had been found by the police. Had this person just fled the scene of the crime? Nevertheless, the delivery person provided a rather accurate description which allowed the police to come up with a composite sketch of a man, white with brown curly hair between 25 and 35 years old, with no other distinguishing features other than sunken eyes of someone who regularly used drugs like crack or heroin. According to Lieutenant Gavro, an apartment like this with an unlocked door was a perfect spot for the homeless and for anyone who wanted to go there to do drugs without worrying about being seen. In other words, it was a squad where all kinds of street thugs came to seek shelter once night fell and also during the day to discreetly stay out of sight. With the testimony from the rotisserie delivery person and with the help of the composite sketch, police started to regularly patrol the neighborhood questioning the residents and anyone suspected of being a habitual junkie. However, they never found any trace of the mysterious person with the curly hair. A few days later, Claude David, a resident of Montreal, went to the police station to give his deposition. He recalled that on the day before Denise Morel's death, he too had been sent by the landlord to visit the apartment, for he too wished to rent it. Claude David remembered that something was amiss as soon as he opened the door to the dwelling. He felt a strange presence awaiting him all throughout his tour of the apartment, an invisible yet threatening presence that prompted him to cut his visit short and leave the place to never come back. Claude David said that he probably dodged a bullet that day and the persons lurking in the shadows would probably have killed him too if it had not been for the sense of foreboding that saved his life. The police decided to hold on to his testimony during the progress of the investigation. The third theory proposed by the investigators, and certainly the most probable, was that the actress was probably with someone on the day of her death. Justin Corset, her former roommate, was then in the crosshairs of the police. He was the first one to provide the police with the information about the apartment and the first one to have alerted them after the phone call from the landlord, which was a strategy sometimes used by some killers when they want to cast off suspicion by causing confusion. Rene Gagnon further recalled that the relationship between Denise and her roommate had not been very good for some time and she had decided to cancel his tenancy agreement. Could this have been a case of revenge? But Joycelyn Corset had a solid alibi. On the afternoon of Tuesday, 17 July 1984, he was working at his music store and furthermore, customers would testify on his behalf. He didn't have work until the shopping mall closed at 10 p.m. and he wasn't gone for very long during his break. As proof, he still had a receipt from a donut shop where he had a donut and a coffee to go at 6 p.m. After questioning the young man's employer, as well as customers in the record store, Joycelyn Corset was eventually eliminated from the list of potential suspects. 
According to Gauthier, Denise's older sister, knowing my sister, I'm certain that she would never have gone all alone to visit an empty apartment that she hadn't been to before. She was too smart for that. Renee Gagnon also firmly supported that idea and added that Denise would have never gone into the apartment all alone. Knowing her and the neighborhood, I didn't think that she would have gone there by herself without being accompanied by someone that she trusted completely. So, then who could have accompanied Denise Morel on that day? Looking into the victim's personal life was even more difficult for the investigators because she never spoke much about it. Denise Morel was a secretive woman which added another layer to the mystery surrounding her unexplained murder. Neither her family nor her friends nor her co-workers ever heard her mention of a lover or even an affair. Yet, it was possible that she could have been so pure. Lately, Gauthier wondered if perhaps her sister was being threatened by someone, was afraid of someone in particular, and was in fear of her life. Could this mean that the killer was a rejected secret lover who finally decided to take revenge? The police rifled through Denise's telephone book in search of any suspicious phone numbers, an address or a strange name that looked out of place, but they found nothing. The funeral of Denise Bloom was held on Monday, July 23, 1984 at St. Clement Church in the presence of all her siblings as well as her fellow colleagues from the theater, who she had worked with and personalities from Quebec television. Her unexplained and barbaric death had shocked the entire community in Canada. The play that Denise Morel had been performing in at that time of her death was cancelled a short time later and some of the actors, out of respect for the deceased friend, preferred not to continue the adventure without her. Renee was at the top of the list, which also included Clayton Labrèche and Michel Tremblay. The latter also had this to say on the subject. For part of the summer in the wake of this horrible tragedy, we wondered if we could go on with the upcoming play called Albertine, whose rehearsals were scheduled for late August and in which Denise had one of the primary roles. Everyone in the whole cast was shocked. We all loved her so much. For more than 20 years, the Morel file had remained unsolved. One of the physical evidence gathered by the police at the scene of the crime, nothing else had sparked any new interest in the case nor provided any potential new leads. Yet, in 2005, a ray of hope appeared when police in Montreal believed that they had finally found a potential suspect in Denise Morel's murder based on a genetic profile compared to data found at the crime scene and which had since been stored in the Canadian DNA databank. However, the results proved negative. It would not be until 2007 and a new advancement in terms of DNA analysis that the case would have any renewed interest. An episode on the investigative series entitled Que Tu, broadcasted on TVA, was devoted to Denise Morel, which allowed a full-scale reopening of the investigation and put the case back in the spotlight. Once again, genetic data, which had been collected 20 years earlier, including pubic hairs belonging to the victim, and traces of sperm from the killer were sent to the genetic bank where more than 50,000 samples had been collected from crime scenes since the end of the 1970s. From these samples, there was one that stood out. It belonged to a thug from one of Montreal's worst juvenile offender communities who had a record of several burglaries and was also responsible for several rapes. His name, Gaetien Bessonet. At the age of 26, at the time of Denise Morel's murder, Gaetien Bissonnette had already been to prison several times for various offenses such as selling drugs, armed trafficking, raping and sexually assaulting minors. Ironically, it was his most recent crime, the armed robbery of a supermarket in 2006 that allowed the police officers to finally put him behind bars. 
Katie Ann quickly confessed he had beaten, raped, and killed Denise Morel in the apartment of Rue Sanganet on July 17, 1984, before fleeing during the night. He explained that he was squatting in the landlord's empty apartment because he had just been released from prison and had nowhere to go. In those days, he was using heroin on a daily basis and but was short of money. He confessed to have stolen the $200 that the victim had withdrawn from the bank. The murderer described how the unexpected arrival of the actress had set the course of events in motion. They found themselves face to face in the hallway. At first, he only wanted to take her money so that he could score his fix, but things degenerated. Denise had panicked and started yelling and running all over the apartment and so he killed her in order to keep her quiet. Gaetien would later go on to retract himself by saying that he never wanted to kill Denise Morel. He explained that her death was purely accidental in hopes that this would reduce the lengthy prison sentence that was already in front of him. A judge from a Montreal courthouse would eventually reject this confession that had seemingly come out of nowhere. His trial began on November 16, 2007. And when it had concluded, Gatien Bissonnette was sentenced to life imprisonment combined with a 20-year-old custodial sentence. For the actress's friends and family, this sentence, although it had come late, posthumously granted some justice to the wonderful and generous person that she was. Today, the notorious neighborhood of Demes knew where the crime had occurred has had a complete makeover. While it was populated in the 1970s, and 80s by junkies and the homeless, it is now home to student housing units, lofts, upscale cafes, and sophisticated hipster boutiques. This new generation is unaware of Denise Morel's murder and the events that led to it. In fact, a resident on the other side of St. Lawrence almost even bought the apartment where the crime occurred, completely unaware of its troubled past. Just like Morel's case, another similar crime was committed on October 22, 1980 where the victim was a young actress by the name France LaChapelle, who was found stabbed several times in her apartment in Quebec. Like Denise Morel, France LaChapelle had performed in several plays and was at the height of her career at the time of the events. She was 22 years old when her killer broke into her home one night, raped her and stabbed her before setting her apartment on fire. In a twist of fate, one of the primary suspects, Robert Lepage, the famous director, with whom Denise Morel had worked. He was later cleared and removed from the list of suspects. The murder of France LaChapelle would eventually be classified as unsolved, joining the sad list of murders of women that occurred in the province of Quebec in the 1980s and 90s. Writer Jacques Cote dedicated a book to her entitled France LaChapelle, Autopsy of an Imperfect Crime. With the advances in forensic medicine and genetic expertise, many crimes that were unsolved for several years have eventually been solved. In Canada, a democratic Algatarian country known for its safety and low rates of crime, it is hard to imagine that murders targeting women would still be making the headlines. Between 1997 and 2005, a climate of fear and paranoia reigned throughout the province of Quebec, where no less than 6,000 women had been murdered under the mysterious and disturbing circumstances. For the rioter and feminist activist Christine Brulette, the sordid memory of the murderers of France La Chapelle and Denise Morel still resonate in the civil society even today. She summed it up in this way. What was shocking to everyone was that it happened right in our own backyard. It showed that this kind of murder could happen not just in a big city like New York or Paris, but also in Quebec. We're at the end of our show for today. So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. 
it's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.